welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast with your host, Brian Briscoe. In this podcast, we bring some of the top professionals in the apartment investing field to discuss various aspects of the apartment investing journey with the sole purpose of educating listeners to make wise investment decisions. The Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast is sponsored by Four Oaks Capital, bringing you high yield returns through apartment complex investing. This is episode number 33 and part of our multifamily brief series. This is Brian Briscoe on Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today. And uh, once again, this is uh, episode three of a three-part series about uh, all things legal and SEC on apartment syndications. And once again, I have with me today, Dugan Kelly. Dugan, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hey, everybody. Glad to be here again with you, Brian. I'm a full-service lawyer. We do... uh, we do real estate, uh, commercial real estate transactions, but we're, we do also, uh, we have offices in Dallas, Fort Worth, as well as Santa Barbara, California. My personal practice uh, for the last uh, few years of 20 plus year career is almost exclusively in commercial real estate transactions, getting you from acceptance of your LOI to the closing table and then structuring your security documents in the event that you're actually going to syndicate something and raise private equity. That's what I do on a daily basis for, for clients around the United States. Nice, nice. Well, so for, for the listeners, if, if you haven't caught them yet, you know, we, we talked in two previous episodes about, you know, more of what an SEC attorney does. Um, we also broke down a lot of the do's and don'ts of, of what you can do under, you know, Reg D, various Reg D offerings. But uh, today we want to talk about something, um, you know, that's uh, very common or can't can be common, you know, 1031 exchanges and syndications, you know, where those two worlds collide. Um, so Dugan, if you could, please, can you explain, first of all, what a 1031 exchange is? Sure. So 1031 is frankly one of my favorite parts of the tax code, mm-hmm. right? There's not a lot of parts of the tax code that I actually love or enjoy, but section 1031 is one of those that is great. It's particularly great for people that are syndicators or commercial real estate, uh, people that love commercial real estate transactions. So in the area of multifamily, for many years, the gurus in the space were saying you could not have a 1031 also participate with a syndication. Mm -hmm. And that just simply isn't true. So thankfully, a few years ago, I started speaking at conferences and for other clients about how you could have a 1031 party uh, mm-hmm. come in. That's that's somebody that has uh, gain, meaning income over and above the debt paid off uh, from a property that they sold, a commercial real estate property. They have this money and it's going to be taxed. How do they avoid having it taxed? Well, they utilize section 1031 of the mm-hmm. IRS code They utilize what we call a qualified intermediary. That's a third party company that takes possession of those sale proceeds, that gain that potentially could get taxed, Mm -hmm. sits it over here in an escrow account and allows the party that just sold that property 45 days to figure out what other properties would potentially meet their criteria to own a piece of or to own completely. When you're talking about a 1031 party being able to participate in the syndication, what we're really talking about is changing the structure of the syndication as a whole. Mm -hmm. Instead of having one borrower, which is the syndicated entity, we're going to have in our hypothetical, we're going to have two borrowers. Mm -hmm. We're going to have 
the 1031 party who's going to come in with their 1031 money. And we're going to have the syndicated entity who's going to come up with the passive investors money. They're not partners with one another uh, because in 1031 partners kind of like a dirty word, mm-hmm. even though they are co-owners of the same apartment building. So while the 1031 party may only have a fraction of the equity that the bank is actually looking for, they may only have 5%, right? Mm-hmm. They will only own what we call 5% undivided interest in the real property. And so they, uh, just like the syndicated entity, will own the property together. They own that property together through the use of what we call a co-ownership agreement or a tick agreement. This mm-hmm. is often called tick. It's not the animal that, that burrows <laughs> into your head like when I was a kid. Yep. It's tenant tenants in common. And so that's the structure that allows a 1031 party and a syndicated entity to come in and own the same property at the same time. This is distinct, separate Mm -hmm. and apart, but at the same time. And so it's a, I think it is a fantastic for sponsors and syndicators out there to allow them diversified uh, potential diversified streams of capital and other individuals that have to deploy that capital in order to avoid paying taxes on it. Nice. And so you want to make sure that that you're when you're meeting with people that have potential turn 31s, that you're open to listening and to talking to them about it and to being open to allow them to purchase kind of that undivided interest in the real property directly from the seller. So it's a, you, as you might imagine, because of the strict time limits that the IRS sets in connection with 1031s, you've got to be, you got to be nimble. You got, you got to yeah. really line up all those things together. But it does provide a syndicator an alternative source or mechanism by which to actually get to the closing table. Mm-hmm. So if you're struggling with your capital raise, or you're thinking that you may not meet the finish table, right? Because yep. the the PSA has a very tight timetable. Then think about whether you know anybody that actually is looking to to place some 1031 money because it is a it's a potential solution to that problem of being of not being able to close. Yeah. You know, I've seen a couple of couple of cases where where people were coming down to the time the end of their timeline on the 1031, you know, end of their 45 days. And at times they can be desperate to to just just be able to put. I think you're allowed to put three properties in at the 45 day mark. Is that correct? Do you remember that? Yeah, there's a there there you're there up to three properties. There's also a 200 percent rule. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. the easy rules are that <clears throat> to identify at least three properties. Yep. You don't have to buy all three properties. The likelihood mm-hmm. is that you're not going to. You Maybe. may put all of it into one. But don't put all your eggs into one basket. Yep. Make sure that you at least are working with a knowledgeable, qualified intermediary that helps you identify as many properties as yep. your budget or your funds will allow so that you can 
not that that you can actually achieve that 1031 and defer those taxes yeah. on the game. So, so so you're not painting yourself into a corner and limiting your right. options at the end. Yeah. So I mean, if you get down to that 45 day mark, you know, I've seen a couple of people who are desperate to to be able to deploy those funds, and you know, that, that that's that's a good key piece. Now, talking about timelines again, you know, if if we're doing a syndication. Um, does it take extra time to bring in 1031 money? Is, is there any other timelines we have to be mindful of? Well, you've got to close within 180 days. Right. So the 1031 party has that 45 day designation mm-hmm. period. Yep. And they have a 180 day close period. That's typically not an issue for the 1031 party. Mm-hmm. The bigger issue is getting your lender on board. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the lender in the tenants in common structure has the ability to take in up to 35, not it's just a coincidence that has mm-hmm. nothing to do with 506B, but they have the ability to take in 35 tenants in common or 35 mm-hmm. co-owners. The reality is no lender in the world, certainly not in the United States, is going to allow you 35 co-owners that all have to be underwritten all have to get their business due diligence lists and items into underwriting. They all have to answer personal questions about creditworthiness and financial capability and all of those things. And then all of those co-owners actually have to sign all the loan documents and the yep. guarantees and the carve-outs, right? And all of that stuff, all of the items that the title company is going to ask for the owners to sign. Often the co-owners will have to sign that. So that is really what drives the pressure from the allowable by law 35 Mm -hmm. to really something much, much smaller. So that's why most sponsors or syndicators are not going to be terribly interested if you said, I've got $5,000, right? And a Mm -hmm. 1031, will you let me come in? Because the work associated with underwriting and documents and negotiation and and doing all of those things is much is is going to be it's it's not it's going to be counterproductive it'll be too costly to allow something like that so you just have to figure out that it's it's is a process your lender will largely dictate how fast or how slow that process goes but you'll want to be you'll want to be careful to make sure that they are informed easily yeah. all the time. Yeah. I think that's a key piece of information that, uh, that a lot of people just don't know is if you're doing a tenant in common, the lender is also going to, or, or the, the tenant in common, the LLC or the people owning that LLC are also going to be on the loan. Absolutely. Okay. That so, makes sense, right? Yeah. Cause they own five, they're going to own a fractional interest mm-hmm. of the real property the bank has the most to lose always in these deals. They have way more than any of the passive investors or anybody has to lose because they're loaning the vast majority of the money to buy the property. And so any fractional interest owner, whether they own 1% or 0.1%, the bank is going to require them to, to sign the loan documents. And the simple reason why is if they're not forced to sign the loan documents, then theoretically they could go out and sell that same interest to somebody else without right. having to pay, pay the lender off. And so the lender wants to make sure that anyone that is a borrower or anyone rather 
restated, anyone that owns an undivided interest in the real property is bound to the same loan covenants, the same loan agreements, the same obligations that the syndicated entity okay. uh, is bound to as well. Yeah. So, so I think key takeaway is, you know, 1031 money is going to take time to, to get the lender approval and to get everything done. So it's not, it's not a last minute Hail Mary, you know, let, let's get this across the finish line, but it's, it's something that you have to be deliberately planned into and discussed with your, uh, your lender. And I assume the, the SEC attorney as well. Absolutely, because you want to you want to make sure that all of your investors know that you're mm-hmm. list as the syndicator that you're listening to potential 1031 parties, and that you might allow that 1031 party to actually purchase an undivided interest from the same seller. Which means that instead of 100 percent of the property being owned by the syndicated entity, now only 90 percent, or 95 percent, mm-hmm. or 80 percent. Whatever it is that's being sold to the 1031 party is something that's not being sold to you. So you want to make sure that your investors are always kept in the loop, that they understand that uh, and that uh, that your your offering makes makes it clear exactly what they are uh, purchasing. All right. Great. Well, hey, last question for you, Dugan. How can people get in touch with you? Happy to speak with any of your audience. Uh, They can reach me easy. Got a got a easy, understandable name, Dugan, D-U-G-A-N. Uh, you can find me on the internet. You can drop me a line uh, or you can find me through our website. You can send me an email yep. at Dugan at KellyClarkLaw.com. Uh, yep. And that'll be in the show notes along with a link to the website. And you know, once again, Dugan, you know, thanks for coming on the show, sharing all the, the great tips that you have today. You know, I really appreciate you and, and, and the time you've given to us today. Thanks, Brian. Hey, everybody, before we go today, I just wanted to bring your attention to a free ebook that we have on our website available to everybody. The website is fouroakscapital.com. And what this free ebook is, is it's a comparison between investing in multifamily and investing in the stock market. You know, it shows you actual returns had you put $100,000 into the stock market 20 years ago compared to the typical multifamily syndication investment. And you know, I'm not going to give away the, the punchline here, but you're going to be surprised at the results. Uh, ever wonder how to explain this to other people who are on the fence on investing? Or if you're on the fence on investing yourself, okay, this is the, the perfect ebook for you. It should be right at the top when you go to the website. You know, it download it. It's free. Look it over. Share it with your friends. Anyway, that's it for today, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at fouroakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show, so pull out your phone, tap subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.